Well, hi there. It's great to be with you. Uh, we are in a little series based in the prophet Habakkuk at the start of this year. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Habakkuk chapter 2? Habakkuk chapter 2, it's the, towards the very end of the Old Testament. And what we're doing is looking at a prophetic response to crisis. What does it look like to have a prophetic response to the crisis of our day and the crisis in Habakkuk's day? But if you weren't here last week, it is worth just giving you the gist of what we did then so you can understand what's going on in this book as a whole. It's a little book, but Habakkuk is a Jewish prophet who is speaking at about 605 BC. And what he's doing is it actually the book begins with him complaining to God about the fact that God has not yet judged the injustices that are taking place in the land of Judah at the time. And so he's saying to God, God, what are you doing? Why haven't you judged this? And then God answers him and God says, it's okay, Habakkuk, don't worry. I'm bringing the Babylonians, who he calls the Chaldeans. I'm going to bring them from Babylon and they're going to judge Judah. So don't worry, I've got it covered. And Habakkuk says, that's, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. That's, the Babylonians are even worse than us. How on earth could that be a response of justice? And God replies and says, don't worry, I'm on it. I am going to bring judgment. You might have to wait, but I am. But what you need to know is that when judgment does come, it's not like everyone's going to die, but actually the righteous shall live by faith. And so what we saw was that part of our prophetic response to crisis in the book of Habakkuk is the response of faith, the response of trust in the Lord in the midst of the crisis. What we're going to see today in chapter 2 is a very different sort of response to crisis. And it's a very different kind of writing, actually, as well. We're going to see the response of awe, the response of awe in a crisis, the response of standing before a holy, glorious, majestic God in silence and wonder and admiring him and revering him for who he is in contrast to the way that people respond to false gods or the idols. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. And the passage in style is completely different from last week. And of course, next week, it'll be completely different again. It's, it's actually a very diverse book, given how short it is. Because the kind of writing we're going to read is quite unfamiliar to most of us, unless we happen to go to football matches on a regular basis. Because the chapter we're going to read now is basically a taunt. That's what it says it is in the text. It's a taunt. It's a mocking passage, rant against Babylon and their false gods. That's what the passage is. And what happens is that it plays a very important role in the book because what happens is that Judah is, if Judah is given this encouragement, if you like. Yes, you're going to face judgment, but don't worry. It's not like God has let their evil go by. God is going to judge them as well. And this is, if you like, a a taunt against Babylon, seeing that Babylon has also been judged for all the evil that they did. And it's structured, as you'll see as we read it, around the word woe. There are five woes against Babylon for her plunder and injustice and violence and shaming other nations and idolatry. And what happens as we read through it, just helpful sometimes just to see what's going to happen before we read it so we can be clear where we are. But Habakkuk pronounces all these woes and says, because you've plundered, you will be plundered yourself. Because you have been unjust and violent, you will yourself suffer injustice and violence. Because you have shamed other nations like us, like Judah, you will be shamed as well. But it's actually the fifth woe that we're going to focus on the most in this message and the fifth and probably the most important one. Because the fifth and final woe, Habakkuk shows us the difference between the response of idolatry, which is what Babylon has done, and the appropriate response of awe 
and silent wonder and reverence before a holy God. And so I hope even just sketching it out like that will help us find our feet in this kind of slightly unusual sort of writing we're going to read. But we're going to read Habakkuk chapter 2 now, beginning at verse 6. Shall not these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the peoples will plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who built a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come round to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image? A teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Nothing exposes our gods as much as a crisis. You notice that? When when everything around us is being shaken or threatened, we instinctively look for a saviour or a rock or a refuge, a place to hide, a place to find shelter and safety and salvation. So when everything's being shaken, when you face a crisis, you find out who your God is. And that's true, I think, at a personal level. It's true when, if you've ever been on an aeroplane that you thought was about to crash, it's amazing how people respond to looking around for safety and they start praying even though they don't normally pray because they're looking to their God even if they didn't really know that they believed in God. A classic tragic example is often told the the, the Wall Street crash in 1929 when all the banks went south in New York City and an awful lot of people who had put all of their hope and safety and security in money, stocks and shares, see their money can't save them and they start jumping out of the windows of the skyscrapers to their deaths 
because their God has let them down in a crisis. They've looked around in a crisis and said, that's my God, that's the thing I can trust on. Oh no, it really can't save me. And therefore life isn't worth living. And so at a personal level, what happens in a crisis is everything gets shaken and you find yourself reaching out for your God, whoever he, she, it is, to save you. And it happens at a personal level. It happens at a national level as well. It's interesting, if you travel around the world, you see that what people do and where people look for safety in a crisis is different from nation to nation. So in America, for instance, they would place much more emphasis on the military being a means of salvation than we would here. It's almost can be a bit of a national god. Uh, people continually looking for rescue and redemption. So even if they aren't necessarily militarily under attack, they will often look for military means of resolving a problem. That's partly how we got from 9-11 to the wars of the first 10 years of this century. So we quite quickly look for, oh, the military will come and save us. Now, in Britain, we don't really do that in the same way. I think we probably grateful in its place for the army but there's nothing like the place in our public life in britain the place where we look to for safety and security as a nation is probably the nhs which is one of the reasons why this crisis has been so difficult i i think we've looked to the nhs for that role for much longer than this crisis it certainly didn't start i remember two years ago being at a christian conference and uh i, I winced because the the speaker was uh, making a point and then said this thing about how great the NHS was. And this entire Christian conference, who had not burst out in applause for God at any point in the conference, burst out in applause for the NHS. And I thought to myself, well, okay, maybe, um, but wow, that's revealing. There is a, there's a lot of safety and security that we as a nation might put there. And so we'll find this, this sort of dynamic, and in other nations it might be something else. Now, that's not to dis the American army or the NHS or anything. It's just to say we've got to be aware that in a crisis, what we do is we look to our God, the place where we are most likely to feel safe, and we put a lot of stock by that thing, that entity, and we trust it and hope that it will save us. And then, because crises expose our gods, what happens is people find themselves very shaken because they lean on something and they find it actually can't save me. And that can make people quite thrown, both nationally and personally. And so another thing that often happens in a crisis is that people don't just, it doesn't just expose people's gods, but it makes people exchange their gods because they thought that this thing could save them. And then they went, oh, like the Wall Street crash example, oh, it can't save me. And as a result, they go, oh, well, maybe I, I need to look for a different god. And that's often something that happens in scripture and in history. You see it a lot in the Bible. If you know the Old Testament well, you'll see many biblical stories crisis exposes gods and the classic example is the exodus where you have the gods of egypt one by one being exposed and it's like the plagues against egypt are targeted at the sun god the river nile god pharaoh himself all these gods because they're saying your gods can't save you and that's what the plagues do but you find it over and over again you find it the fall of Jericho or Elijah on Mount Carmel confronting the prophets of Baal and the crisis exposes that their God can't save them. And you find it with the Roman Empire and you find it with Jonah and Nineveh. You find it actually with Babylon, as the, the, who are the people we're reading about at the moment. I mean, interestingly, you find it in recent history as well. So I remember I just heard this fantastic comment from an Argentinian guy who had lived through the defeat in the Falklands War. And Argentina experienced a huge revival in the 
sort of 10, 15, 20 years after the sort of evangelical revival of the gospel and of people being saved in the years after the Falklands War. And he made this very interesting comment. He said, what happened in our nation was that the, the losing the Falklands War shook us to our very core and it actually prompted people to realize we are not as secure and great as we thought we were and it prompted people to turn to God in the crisis. He said, actually, we as Britain, as a nation, won the war but actually lost out spiritually because we became arrogant and proud and self-sufficient. Whereas in another nation, you get somebody who loses a war, but they get revival, which is worth so much more. The crisis leads their, God, their gods, if you like, to be exposed and then to be exchanged. People say, this can't save us. We better turn to the real God. Now, I'm not saying that to promise that the current crisis is going to lead to revival. I'm, that's, not my, that's not a guarantee but I certainly think that's what we should be praying for, amen? That the exposure of all of the places where people look to safety, whether it be their job, their finances, their entertainment life, their, their health service, whatever it might be, those gods ultimately don't save. There is a problem in this world, sin and death, that is too big for any of those gods to save you. And as a result, you might want to turn to a different, you want to turn to the real God, the one from whom all of those gifts come. And so I think that's a good thing for us to be praying for as we go into the week of prayer, even if it's not something we can guarantee. Isn't it from the Lord of hosts, Habakkuk says, that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Because the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that'd be a good thing for us to be praying for in the coming weeks. So in the specific crisis that Habakkuk is talking about here it's not just that the idols are exposed, it's that Babylon's idols are exposed in a very specific way by means of a contrast between Babylon's gods and the Lord. And so we're going to look at verses 18 to 20 a bit now, because there are at least three contrasts in these three verses between idols, the gods of Babylon, and the real God, the God of Israel. The first one is, as you can see in verse 18, the contrast between the creator and the creature. So one of the things that happens in a crisis is sometimes that idols are exposed, that this is basically a created thing. The true God is the creator, the false God is the created. And that's the most obvious difference, isn't it, between worshipping the real God and worshipping an idol. You either worship the God who made man, or you worship a man-made God. And there's no middle ground. So verse 18 says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. I mean, it sounds really stupid. And I think for those of us who, well, most of us, grown up in cultures where physical wooden or metal gods are not typically worshipped, as a sort of, people don't bow down to idols in their houses or whatever, we might find it hard to connect with. But of course, our entire world is filled, this city right now, is filled with human-created things that people place eternal value in, or people see as being the source of transcendent good. And so you might think, why on earth would anybody want to worship a god that they'd made themselves? But actually, there's a very good reason. Control. If I worship something that I have made, then the real source of power around here is me. Because I get to tell it what to do, and then I worship it and look to it for transcendent value and meaning. But I, ultimately, I defined what that value and meaning was. 
My man-made God will tell me to do anything I want. It's great. I get to worship something that I'm ultimately in control of, which means the real God around here is me. Its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. So the first contrast between the real God and idols is the, dif- the difference between the creator and the, cr- and the creature. The second contrast is between the God who speaks and the idol who says nothing, who cannot speak. Look at verse 19. He makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it at all. So, oh, he's hammering. He says, it's speechless, it's silent, it's made of wood. It doesn't have any power. It's covered in metal. This cannot speak. Whereas the real God is the God of speech, the God whose very words are being spoken through the prophet Habakkuk. Idols, on the other hand, are speechless. They're wooden and silent, and therefore, pagan worship, idolatrous worship, revolves around us. It centers on the worshiper and what we say and what we do. You notice that? Uh, if, if, yet you, this is true in the ancient world, and it's true in the modern world as well. If you worship idols, actually, the worship in that religious system is likely to be based around what I do as a worshipper, because the God can't say or do anything. So what, it's all about this phrase being used at the right time, or that action, or this request, or that dance, or this sacrifice being offered, or that formula. Again, classic example, Elijah against the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal are trying to get their God to send fire and they dance around and that doesn't work and then they shout from through until lunchtime and then they start cutting themselves and they do all these incredible religious performance to try and get the God to do something. So the, the worship process centers on the worshiper. But then Elijah steps up and he just says, God, you made everything. Send fire. Because actually you don't need to do an awful lot if you're worshipping the real God because he can speak. He can act. But if your God doesn't say anything and can't do anything, you have to do an awful lot. Worship of the true God is governed by what God has done, not by what we do. And you'll notice, even in the form of Christian worship, you contrast Christian worship and pagan worship, you see such an obvious difference. That Christian worship is basically where we come before God and receive things that he's already done. We might sing songs to him, but we sing songs to him about what he's done, not what we're going to do. And then we hear his word, which is what he's already spoken. And then we receive gifts from his table, bread and wine. We receive spiritual gifts. And we spend our whole time to say, God, I'm coming to get something from you. I'm coming to receive what you have already achieved. This service is based around your sacrifice for me and not my sacrifice for you. It's a massive difference between Christian and pagan worship. And it's based around the fact that the true God can speak and idols cannot. So that's the second contrast. Creator versus creature. The God who speaks and the idols who can't. And then the third contrast is actually the flip side of what I've just said, which is that with idols, you speak and the God is silent. You are at the center. But when you worship the real God, he speaks and you are silent. And in the worship of the real God, there's always a key place 
for silence, for simply encountering, marveling at, and seeing the scale and majesty of the real God rather than talking all the time. He's at the center and you and I respond in awe. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Like I have this sometimes with the sunrise. And I'll see a sunrise that is of more perhaps an unusual beauty or brightness or whatever. And sometimes I'll just see it and I just... It's a wonderful line in C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle where he says, as you know, there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, because God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. And the response, this is what I call the response of awe, is that whereas in front of the idol, we're talking all the time because the God can't do anything, we're acting on his behalf because he can't do anything, when we come to the real God, we often fall silent in wonder and in awe. And that's how this bit of Habakkuk ends, with a response of awe before the true God in all his splendor. A prophetic response to crisis involves knowing that idols are going to be exposed and that people may want to exchange their gods, and they're going to be exposed as speechless and incompetent and unable to save. But it also involves silent awe in face of the real God, the creator God, the God who speaks. And even in this short section of scripture, which, as I said, is basically a taunt against Babylon for their idols, Habakkuk has actually already given us three reasons to fall silent in awe before the Lord of the whole earth. We stand in awe of God because of his glory. Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm actually being reminded of this, even just watching, I don't know if you watch A Perfect Planet, the new David Attenborough thing that's on BBC, it's on Sunday, sun tonight, 8 p.m., I recommend it. I mean, this stuff, you're, just, you're seeing the glory of what God has made and you think the earth's full of it. Everywhere you look, even if you try and run as far away from people as you get and you come across these random flamingo-like things and you see them and you think, it's full of the glory. The glory of God is everywhere, like the waters cover the sea. This world is covered in glory. And there's a context to stand in awe. And this is what I'm doing as I'm watching it. I'm just worshipping, thinking, Lord, the glory of God expressed in these things you've made, even though I don't know what they are. We stand in awe because of his glory. We stand in awe because of his justice. Verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. This is the cup of God's judgment against Babylon. and saying, actually, you need to stand in awe of God because he's the judge and you're not. And he's going to judge this nation who at the moment is being used to judge you, Judah. But one day they're going to be judged too. And you need to stand in awe of him, the one who brings justice to the nations. And we stand in awe of God because of his holiness, his otherness, his perfection, his difference from us. The Lord is in his holy temple. So let all the earth keep silence before him. We contemplate his perfection and his goodness and his otherness and we marvel this is something actually through 
I, lockdowns are hard, aren't they? Spiritually more difficult times than, than I've known, um, at least in my own personal life, probably in many of ours. I found a lot of the ways in which I would normally encounter the awe of God, including corporate worship, like that, that's, that's the main one for me. And so I've lost that to a large degree. I, obviously, I watch every Sunday. I'm worshiping along, but I'm on my own or with my wife, and I'm not really participating in the kind of thing we're used to. So I need to work harder to encounter the awe of God. I, I found books about who God is have really helped me, even quite simple ones. I just put up a, a screen with just five books. That, the, the fifth one's a bit cheeky because it's by me and it's coming out in a couple of months, which I hope will help some of us experience awe in God again. But the other four are all books I just really commend to you to consider and look at and just think, yeah, they're not particularly tricky books to read, particularly the, the first one or two, really quite simply written, but they're just filled with revelation about who God is. And I trust they may encourage and serve you as you're saying, I, I want to experience awe in God. And I guess that would be my challenge for us off the back of this message in Habakkuk. One of the most powerful ways in which we can prophetically respond to this crisis is to stand in awe of God rather than frantically running around trying to do everything on behalf of an idol. Right, and, and that's particularly important as, as I say, many of the ways in which we normally stand in awe of God have been stripped away at the moment. But it will not happen automatically. I, in my normal day in lockdown, it's not easy for me just to stand in awe of God. It doesn't, I don't suddenly get an epiphany of God appearing in a cloud. I need, left to my own devices, my brain gets full of clutter and social media and news and entertainment and activity and sorting out what we're going to do with the kids because the school's gone or whatever it might be I have to pursue awe in God or else it disappears from me and obviously it's vital to continue reading the scriptures and praying and gathering online on Sundays and in groups but I've mentioned a couple of other things I find helpful books about God watching a perfect planet seriously that's helped me just see the greatness of God there are a whole bunch of others this, that this church still provides for me as a member of the church, even though we're not able to gather. Listening to Gabriel's just powerful reading in that uh, Christmas service, wasn't that mighty? Just the way he speaks, I think, wow, I can see something of the grandeur of God. I um, had a day when it was just raining so hard the other day, and I, I just felt like I'm not sure what I can do here. I'm going to put on the sort of you know, those plastic trousers you put on when it's really raining and your coat. And I went out, just put my earphones in, and I listened to David Gale and the band singing The Same Power Lives in Us. And I was just belting it out because there's nobody, nobody else anywhere near my house. I'm just walking along the street, singing at the top of my lungs, praising God. I'm finding I'm having to do things, quite a lot of things I'm not normally doing, to find awe in God yet again so that I can be confronted once more with the reality of his majesty and splendor in the context of a crisis. And you'll be different from me. And you probably need to do other things that are not like the ones I've just mentioned. But we all need to ask probably ourselves that question. What prompts me to stand in awe of God? Let all the earth fall silent before him. What does that in my heart? And how might I make more of a habit of it in this season that's going to be so challenging for the next few weeks? Friends, crises reveal idols. But they also reveal the true God the creator, the speaking one, the holy one. Let's stand in awe of the one whose glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of you together. 
We want to, as we sing this song, we want to stand in awe of you and marvel. We want to see the splendor and majesty and greatness of God again. Lord, I pray for us that you would fill us with delight at your majesty and greatness and you would help us inappropriately after this song even to fall silent before you as we see you in your holiness and splendor. Amen.